Rise and shine! It's a great day in the North Woods! Good day, and welcome to the Camp Voyager Podcast. I'm Alex Quanley. Today on the show, I'm joined by Otto Josie. Otto spent his entire career in outdoor recreation, education, and wildlife conservation. On this episode, we discuss his work with wildlife services, introducing kids to the outdoors, and Otto shares a few of his favorite memories from his time in the field that you won't want to miss. Otto Josie, the third, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. It's nice to be here. We met down in Colorado at the Camp Voyager reunion, and I didn't get a big chance to talk with you, but um, you talked mostly with John and Charlie, but I did overhear, overhear a few tidbits that you had talked about. And some of the, well, the main listeners on our show are Voyager alumni and friends, as well as Boundary Waters enthusiasts in general. So I think they'd be very interested uh, if you'd start off with your career and the trajectory that it took and the places that it took you? Well, as a kid, I always loved being in the outdoors. I spent a lot of time in Southern Indiana, Brown County. We had a little farmhouse down there. And as a kid, I just fished and hunted and played in the creek. And uh, so I just always had that love. And then, you know, um, I think after my freshman year in high school, I got to go to Camp Voyager and I went for the two month uh, experience, which, you know, I always claim it was one of the greatest summers I ever had, even though, even though I got uh, terribly homesick at the midpoint, but uh, I toughed it out and stuck around. Uh, but, you know, the, the Camp Voyager experience, the wilderness experience, really was just another piece of my desire to work in the outdoors, whatever that was at the time, I didn't know. But as it turned out, I got a degree in uh, outdoor recreation and education from Indiana University. And then I went on to get a master's degree. And um, after my fresh, after my uh, graduation from my Indiana University, I worked at a outdoor education camp called uh, Bradford Woods, which was owned and operate, operated by Indiana University through their uh, Parks and Recreation Department. So I had a, you know, not only a camping experience as a camper, but I had a camping experience as a uh, camp, uh, managing a outdoor education program, and uh, it was really great experience was three years, four years, I think that I did that. And then after that, I went back for my master's degree. But it was a great experience because it introduced all the fifth graders from uh, Monroe County, which is where Bloomington's located. But all the fifth graders uh, in the Monroe County school system got to spend a week, uh, Monday through Friday, at Bradford Woods. So we along with my fellow camp counselors and camp workers, we introduced thousands of kids to the outdoors. And uh, it was really a great experience for me. It was a great first real professional job for me uh, where I um, ran the program, trained the staff, 
worked with all the uh, auxiliary staff from the maintenance people to the cooks. So it gave me a really wide breadth of experience of what's it, what's it like to run a camp. And uh, I found it to be just, you know, really rewarding. So once I got done with that and finished my master's degree, took a short break with my wife and I, and uh, we did a big bicycle trip across the United States, kind of a, a break from before we went into the working world. So that was really a great experience. And once I got back from that, I um, finally got a job from with the Indiana Department of Natural Resources in their Division of Outdoor Recreation. And uh, I worked with uh, several different jobs. I was a grant manager for the Land and Water Conservation Fund grant program, which was run through the National Park Service. We provided dollars to local park communities uh, to do everything related to outdoor recreation. So I worked with a lot of park, park and rec departments throughout Indiana. After about three years in that job, I moved into a job as a streams and trails specialist, which was really a great job because that included canoeing. We had uh, in Indiana, they have some uh, actual water trails that are located on their state scenic river segments. I don't know how many are out there now, but at the time, the Wildcat Creek, uh, it was a state scenic river and we had uh, maps and put in and take out points for people to do canoeing trips on that. So that was really, you know, an extension of Camp Voyager. You know, here I was working in resource management on canoe trails. Uh, we also did snowmobile trails. Uh, we did rail trail projects. So that, again, it was a really great experience working in the outdoors and the, just the whole management of outdoor recreation uh, resources. And then I moved on from that job into the into an educational position as the hunter education coordinator for the South region of Indiana. And basically, if any anybody wants to hunt in Indiana, they have to go through a hunter education course and get that hunter education certification course. And it's a basic course on everything that involves hunting from uh, handling a firearm safely, wildlife conservation, survival skills, all very basic information, but very, really important to uh, the uh, kind of the portal to uh, hunting. Uh, and from that, uh, believe it or not, my wife got a great job in Colorado and we always wanted to move out West. So I just quit my job at uh Indiana Department of Natural Resources, and we moved out to Colorado, and I just, you know, started looking for work, and I, I did a short working uh, seasonal job with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and again, it was in grant management for trails, whether they were uh, hiking trails, biking trails, uh, off-road vehicle trails. We had all, you know, the whole gamut of trails. We didn't do water trails, but uh, but we did do the, the others that I mentioned earlier. And one day, uh, and I was in the job for six months. Then they brought me back on as a contract employee, but I was still looking for something full-time. And in the meantime, my boss, my supervisor from 
Indiana Department of Natural Resources in uh, law enforcement called me and told me that uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was looking for a hunter education coordinator in Lakewood, Colorado, which was just, you know, that's a, just another metro, uh, another town in the metro Denver area. So I couldn't believe it. So I went ahead and I, I, I applied for the job. And uh, lo and behold, I, I uh, was offered the job. And so that particular job, I worked in, again, it was a grants program. It's a uh, under the Wildlife and Sport Fish Restoration Act. And that is a huge uh, funding source for state fish and wildlife agencies. Basically, it's a manufacturer's excise tax on fishing and hunting equipment. And that tax comes into the U.S. Treasury, then it's passed over to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And then we manage and administer that money, which then goes, that money then goes to state fish and wildlife agencies. Every every state fish and wildlife agency in the country gets a piece of the pie. So, uh, for example, Colorado, they get about, oh, it's probably up to about 30 $35 million roughly a year. And though they are given that money, they still have to apply for the money. And that's where I come in. I admit I was basically managed and administered the dollars to make sure that the money was spent per the eligibility requirements of the uh, both the Sport Fish and the Wildlife Restoration Act. So that particular job opened me up to a whole new venue of outdoor recreation. It was more based on wildlife conservation because the states use the money to do wildlife management. They use it also to buy land. They also use it for hunter education. They pay for a hunter education program because every state has a hunter education program. And most states require hunter education if, a, if an individual wants to hunt. So I managed all those grants in my particular region, which was I, I was really blessed. I had uh, one of the, I think one of the best regions because I had eight states, which was Montana, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, North and South Dakota, Kansas, and Nebraska. So I worked with all those states, got to travel to them. We would do uh, field review projects to, or field review trips to see where the money was being spent and see the actual projects that the money were being spent. So I got to see all the most beautiful parts of those states, uh, looking at different projects from land acquisition projects where states would buy significant amounts of uh, land for wildlife and, and fishing resources. Saw um, some great research projects where we actually went out chasing collared mountain lions when, which they were, which they were studying, you know, and it, it, that was actually in Colorado. So we we're out there running after chasing after, uh, uh, mountain lions to take data on them to see where they see where they travel, see uh, what kind of habitat they use, their food sources. It was really a, a fascinating opportunity. Uh, so I mean, I just there's so many different areas that I got to see. You know, that I was just fortunate, and uh, I had that job for 22 years, and I met not only all the 
fish and wildlife agencies in my region, the eight states, but also across the country, because it's a national level program. And so there's a lot of national coordination, networking meetings, and uh, had the opportunity to just meet people from all walks of life, because the uh, culture of wildlife conservation is somewhat the same, but there are you know, nuances to every region, every state, they have their own way and their own needs. So it was a real eye opener for me because I'd really been mostly in the outdoor recreation end of it. But here I was in the conservation end of where they're working to establish and maintain uh, wildlife, fish and wildlife resources for not only hunters and anglers, but for the public at large. And, um, that job, like I said, 22 years. And then in December of 2021, I retired. So I've been in retirement now for one year, a little over one year. And I'm sure in your retirement, you're going back to some of those places that you got to see when you were working and oh, sure. experience them and hunt and fish. And- oh, sure. Yeah. I, uh, you know, when I would go on trips to other states, you know, I would take the time, you know, I would spend free time maybe fishing or even hunting with the, with the uh, state staff, you know, we get off work and uh, you know, they're, they lived in areas where you just basically go not far from where they live. And you, there's some quality fishing resources, or sometimes we did some quality hunting and it was really a great way to meet people and uh, experience all the great resources that, not only are the states in my region, but states across the country have. In your, in your mind, why do you think it's important for kids to get outdoors? Like with your first, with the job, when you worked for the summer camp, managing that, uh, what did you notice were some of the outcomes of getting kids outdoors? Oh, I think it's just a great opportunity for kids that maybe aren't really big into school and the academic parts. It's, it is a definitely an environment where any child can excel. And, and it's really good mentally for kids. I mean, there's just to be outdoors, to experience the outdoors. It just really is a outstanding opportunity. Uh, you know, and I'll use myself as an example. I wasn't exactly the best kid when it came to school. You know, probably like a lot of kids, I didn't like to do homework. I didn't, you know, I didn't like to read books. But uh, when I was in uh, the fifth grade, I was in the Indianapolis public school system. And they also had an outdoor education experience at Bradford Woods. It was a different camp than what I operated because there were several different camps on the facility. But as a kid, I went to that camp for five days and it was just a great experience for me because I was like equal with all the A plus students. I mean, I knew a lot about the outdoors and it was just like a confidence builder for me as a child. It was, I mean, it just really was, you know, and when I, and when I look back at that, it just really um, touched on a, a memory because I can remember going to that camp and just like, having so much fun and not feeling the need to have to know, you know, all my ABCs and mathematics, but it was more about experiencing and, and uh, just 
engaged in outdoor learning. And I think I had the same experience when I was at, uh, I went to a camp that was called Fort Scott Camp near Cincinnati, Ohio. And again, you know, I was a kid, I just loved the outdoors. And I remember I won a prize. I won like the uh, nature award patch for the camp, which I was totally surprised by. So for myself, and I think this goes for other kids, it's just a great place for kids to enjoy the outdoors, gain confidence, self-esteem, camaraderie. It just, you know, and it's been shown that the outdoors really is has just a real capacity to help kids, whether they're in trouble or not. It's just a great place for them to be. And I think you probably can see that every every summer, you know, that you've worked as a counselor. And now that you're the director, I mean, you, you can just see the, uh, the uh, enthusiasm and the, and the fun that they have. Yeah. Like you touched on, it taps into a, different type of intelligence for kids. They, there's more than one way to be smart. And Mm -hmm. for some kids, they learn that, wow, I might not be good at reading or writing or math, but I'm, but this outdoors thing is sure something I'm good at and their effort can yield results and get them cool places. And, you know, the other thing, I mean, especially today, I mean, all the social media, I mean, they're just bombarded. It just seems like they're bombarded with that. And that to get them outdoors, to get away from all that, I, you know, I just think it's so valuable that, yeah, you know, and I'm sure the research, research would show the, the huge benefits of kids walking away from a phone and the TV, but, and to be outdoors and actually experience something that's real. You know, you don't bring your raincoat. Well, you get wet and it's kind of miserable. Um, you get to cook your own food. Man, it really tastes good. Wow, we paddled 20 miles in one day. Imagine, you know, the confidence of that. I think one of the big ones, too, is just simply it gives you, it gives kids and people time to simply think. You know, when you're bombarded by screens all day, you're not able to really think deeply about things. And that's something this actually brings me to my next question. Sure. Uh, that's something that you notice when you're out there for, especially for an extended period of time, several hours or several days, you're, you're thinking about all sorts of things. Well, it does allow you to focus on things that maybe you don't normally are focused on with, like I said, like with the social media, but it's like, wow, take a you know, you're engaged in all these physical activities, but also the mental stuff of, uh, and, and the visual, you know, you're out in a beautiful wilderness area. There's no car sounds. It's all, there's no airplanes. There's no, just, it's just all wild and natural. And it kind of brings people's attention level much more focused. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's actually research that points to that, that being outside uh, helps improve your focus and attention uh, when you return. It sort of rests your directed attention, they call it, 
because you're sort of indirectly paying attention to things. And when you get back, you're more focused and attentive than you were before. Yeah. You know, another part of my experience was I was in this uh, Wilderness Education Association program. It was similar to like a Knowles or Outward Bound. It was a certified certification for wilderness leaders. So you could take other people out in the wilderness. Uh, and I remember it was a it was a semester long course. And I think we were out in the Wind River Range, which is in Wyoming. And we were there for like, let's see, I think like five straight weeks out in the wilderness the whole time. And, you know, there was just a sense of calm and relaxed, easygoing, focused, but just totally relaxed. And I can remember returning and just the kind of getting back into regular society of, you know, cars and planes. And uh, and I just remember, God, it was like a culture shock. It's like, oh, my God, you're just like bombarded with all this stuff that you just don't know, you know, that I didn't have to listen to or think about because I was out in the wilderness with 15 other people. And, you know, you're pretty much focused on, well, where are we traveling to? Are we going to climb these mountains? Do we have our food? Are we prepared if uh, something happens? Um, so that whole, you know, just the whole outdoor experience, I don't think we can get enough as a society. And I think it just, it kind of shows in some of the kids that have all these problems. I think they were to be outdoors more that would, that would probably help. So as I've been outside a lot, I'm also a big hunter and fisherman. I You have a lot of time to think sitting in a deer stand. <laughs> <Yeah>. And <laughs> one thing that I've mulled over out there is how much I love wildlife and animals. And yet I'm sitting there trying to kill one. <laughs> yeah, right. Have, have you thought about that? Before? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. 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 And I know that's a... That's- what a lot of people say, well, you're a hunter, but you go out and kill things. Well, that's true, but it's part of the life cycle. It's, you know, taking an animal's life is a huge thing. Uh, I don't take it lightly. And I also look at it as, well, yeah, I do this, but I also, you know, I do it because I like the food. I like the harvest, whether it's a fish or a, a bird or a big game animal. I mean, I like the I like that. But that's only, you know, that's the whole hunting thing. It's just one piece of it all. I mean, there's so much more to it than just going out and, and uh, taking the life of an animal. I mean, that's certainly a big part, but there's all the other parts. There's like the camaraderie, learning about the particular species that you're hunting, uh, understanding their habitats. Uh, then, you know, the after part of uh, taking that uh, animal that you've taken that's life and then and actually using it for, for good, for food. So, yeah, it is kind of a irony, isn't it, that, you know, that's what people will say. But I think it's more than just taking the life of an animal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all about the whole experience. The, um, you know, I've been around the hunter education world my entire career and that's one of the things that they're always working on is, you know, making sure as a hunter, you're, you're responsible, take the time to, to be a good hunter, whether that's practicing uh, your shooting abilities, 
uh, not wasting the game when you, you do take an animal. And then also sharing that experience with others in, in a positive light. I don't know if I know anyone who solely hunts or fish simply for the kill. I think, like you said, it's it's about way more than that. And like, for example, some of these big hunters, well, yeah, they're, they might kill a deer or two a year, but they're also maybe improving their habitat for yeah. wildlife. They may be pl- planting native warm season grasses or planting food plots or going to some fundraiser for a conservation effort or donating to uh, something that uh, stocks rivers and ponds with fish or releases pheasants in the wild. So, and then with that being said as well as introducing a kid to hunting is a nice uh, segue into getting them into the outdoors in general. And then, so they may try hunting and then, Oh, maybe I should try fishing and oh, maybe I should try hiking and canoeing and maybe plants the seed for a lifelong pursuit of outdoor adventures. If a hunter is just satisfied by taking an animal's life, there wouldn't be a whole lot of hunters out there then because you got to, at least in Colorado, I think it's less than a 30% chance that you're going to take an elk. So it's not always about the about harvesting the animal. It's all those other experiences that you that you have. Um, so it does beg the question that it's not always about taking an animal. I mean, I hunted many many years and <laughs> I never got a a deer. And I tried elk hunting this year for the first time since I live in Colorado. I didn't get an elk, but I had a great time. Do you have to take a horse or an ATV or did you walk? There's forest service roads you can drive into and you can set your camp up. And then from there you hike in. So it's, and driving in is, can be sometimes easy. And like in this particular case, I went the first time I went, I, we drove up this forest service road and I think it was three miles to get to the camp. And it took us over an hour and a half to go that three miles on this road. <laughs> so it wasn't really much, it wasn't really much of a road. It was a two track. <laughs> so it was not a, you know, it was, it was a, it was a, uh, a thrilling 90 plus minute drive that I thought, Oh my gosh, are we ever going <laughs> to, or if we get in, are we going to be able to get back out? Cause it was, it was one scary road. <laughs> And then do you pretty much spend most of your time glassing and scouting for sign? Yeah, we, um, I was with another buddy that I worked with and, uh, you know, we set up a camp. We had a, it was really fun. I mean, we set up a, had a big uh, wall tent, set that up. And then uh, we arrived prior to the season opening. So then we went out and we scouted around looking for spots where we might see elk and, uh, then the season opened up. We just get up in the morning, get our gear on, get our and head out, take take a walk out into the mountains. And uh, you know, like I said, I think we we saw a few, but they were far away. And but in the meantime, we we're just sitting there enjoying the view. You know, you can just look around, enjoy it. The weather was pretty moderate. It wasn't like cold and snowy, and so. It was really a comfortable hunt, <laughs> to say the least. 
Man, that sounds like fun. Oh, I'm telling you, it was, it was a lot of fun, you know, just, just being out there. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time out in the mountains, but being out in the uh, mountains for hunting, it's, it's a whole different kind of focus, obviously, because you're, you're trying to find an animal to harvest. And so you got a whole different mindset as opposed to if you're just out backpacking and enjoying the, the, uh, enjoying the outdoors. So you had talked a little bit about your, you were a grant, uh, what was the word? Grant manager. Grant manager. What were some of the big conservation projects you approved or worked on? Specific ones? Um, I had to say one of the best, the ones I liked the most were the big land acquisition when a state would buy land for wildlife habitat. Sometimes it'd be for a specific species, but a lot of times it was, you know, it included a lot, even though it had a focus, say, on elk or or another species. But I, those I really liked because that protected another piece of land for, hopefully, for in, in perpetuity, that that land would be protected from any kind of uh, development or agricultural purposes. I really liked, really liked those. And, and, uh, you know, because I was in the hunter education, I handled all the hunter education that also included, uh, shooting ranges. So, uh, uh, a lot of the states were involved in developing shooting ranges because out here in the West, a lot of people go out in the forest and they'll just start shooting up a, you know, just an area just which is unsafe, a lot of trash, and so a lot of states were taking upon themselves to work, uh, build them within the agency, but also work with third parties. And I was involved in a lot of really cool shooting range projects that were from South Dakota to Colorado to Kansas. Um, those the, those were fun. And since I like, you know, shooting shotguns, I like to shoot shotguns. I mean, it was always fun to go do a field review trip because you had to take it take advantage and see if the range worked <laughs> so, oh darn <laughs> yeah so you know that, that always included a little uh recreational shooting i think the uh some of the others was uh uh oh i'll tell you one was the uh one of the best ones i think was did a uh, high alpine lake fish survey work in wyoming so i went out with wyoming game and fish uh, fisheries guys on a, it was a seven day trip into the wind rivers and uh, they had, it was, it was, it was so cool because they had uh, llamas that carried all the gear because you had your personal gear, but then you had all this fish survey gear that they had to carry. And so, you know, we just hiked up into the, uh, into the wind river range and there's all kinds of Alpine lake, high Alpine lakes up there in in that whole region, and uh, we uh, would do fish survey work. We'd do uh, gill netting, check, uh, put nets out at end of the day, and then come back, pull the nets in, and then count and size, and do DNA clips of uh, their fins for uh, for them to just get a uh, understanding of what were the how many, what kind of fish, what were their size. Uh, and so that was a seven-day trip. 
and having done a lot of backpacking and, uh, you know, carrying your own pack, you know, 50 plus pounds, you know, walk 10 miles with that on your back. I mean, it, you know, backpacking is fun, but it's a lot of work. But when you have a llama carrying all your gear and you're just, it's like taking a walk in the park <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, you get to camp and you're not exhausted and, uh, and you can, uh, it's kind of like having llamas. It's kind of like having a canoe because, you know, the canoe carries most all your gear, except when you got to get on a portage. But that was so much fun because we were, you know, they, uh, you know, had to do a little, got time to do personal fishing. So we're up on these rivers and alpine lakes, just fly fishing. And, you know, the up in these areas, you know, the, the fish aren't that well educated. So, it's pretty easy to catch a lot of fish. And uh, I think that was one, that was a project that really stood out because they, they take that information and then they uh, use that to provide information to anglers that are going in the area to let them know, well, here's, here's the type of fish you're going to find. And here's kind of their range, their size range. And here's what you can expect. And, uh, I did some electro shocking of fish where again they were this was with Wyoming and uh they were doing sogai survey work where they actually shock the water and it temporarily uh incapacitates the fish and they again scoop them up, weigh them, size them, identify male, female, do clips for DNA analysis and uh you know, you're just floating down the river and they got these big shockers and they shock it. And then you got a big net and you're just scooping up all these fish and putting them into a, a live well. And then they pull them out and do all the survey work. So that, that was fun. That's um, so cool. Yeah. It was like, you know, and not being a fishery guy, I learned so much. Um, I think I mentioned the one earlier. I did, went out on a, uh, uh, the uh, mountain lion survey work where we actually, what they had to do was they, they were, it's the, they were checking the mount, uh, mountain lion population along the front range here in Colorado, where, you know, those foothills are right up against all the development that's coming on and, and the mountain lions are starting to travel in those areas. So they kind of wanted to figure out, well, where are they? How many are out there? And to do that, they have a electronic collar on them that they can, uh, keep a tabs on them they it sends out a signal and they can tell exactly where this animal is where it's been and where it's going and so and like anything the batteries start to wear out so they had to so i went with them to go they had to find the the animal so that they could replace the battery on the collar because they were starting to get a weak, weak signal so so we went out chasing this mountain lion and uh we, we didn't catch it <laughs> How would you catch it? You got to tranquilize it or something? Yeah, they have a tranquilizer gun. And what they do, they use dogs, the dogs, hound dogs, and they get a scent and they basically tree the mountain lion. Then they tranquilize it. And then at that time, then they go ahead and they they do blood samples and fur samples and they do DNA. Do you have to catch it when it falls out of the tree? Uh, well, it's usually not too high. Okay. But, um, <laughs> But they're pretty tough animals, and uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so we actually we did catch up to this mountain lion, and it was probably oh I don't know like 
10 to 15 feet up on this tree and it was in a small tree so it could barely hang on to the branch it was standing on a branch and and we were like right under the tree looking at it and the dogs are barking and and the mountain lion jumped out of the tree down towards us <laughs> the main guy yelled at the mountain lion but that mountain lion didn't want anything to do with us and it took off and then we never we didn't have time they didn't have time to to uh tranquilize it so it jumped out of the tree it took off and it was like at the end of the day and it was just like well we can't we're not gonna try to chase these chase this animal at night and uh <laughs> so that that was a that was a fun experience wow so, yeah i've never met someone who's chased mountain lions before yeah well you know these guys, the mountain lion biologist, he does it all the time, you know. Must be in good shape. Yeah, it's pretty, you know, they're in pretty rough terrain. It's a lot of going up and down and around, and it's it's pretty rugged territory. I mean, they don't. it's not like they're out in some nice city park. They're deep in the woods, deep in the mountains. Yeah. When you were setting aside or... or uh going to the places that they would set aside to be protected as wilderness. Was there ever pushback from the locals? And the reason I ask is because the boundary waters, like for example, Sig Olson, Mm -hmm. he's a famous environmentalist and author up in from Ely. And now he's uh, well-known and popular, but I had heard some stories back in the day not by the majority, but by the minority of people up in Ely really hated him because because he was basically taking away resorts and mining operations mm-hmm. yeah, and getting people kicked off their own land in order to protect it. So I'm wondering if you have witnessed some of, some of that pushback as well. Well, a lot of times, like when a state fish and wildlife agency buys land, you know, it's a multi-use piece of property. It's not a wilderness, but it is protected for conservation purposes. Uh, so if a state's buying land, you know, they have to buy it through a willing seller. It's it's a little bit different than, than say, a wilderness area where they uh, might take large swaths of land. I mean, tens of thousands of acres that would include private inholdings that people would lose. Um, so in my case, it was willing sellers, but that's not to say that people wouldn't be against it. For example, like at the very local level, counties, states and counties would say, well, you're taking that off the tax roll. We don't want that. You know, there's, you know, we want that land to be producing crops or be available for development, whatever it might be other than conservation. So we'd have to, you know, the states would have to deal with that. And in some cases, some states don't don't allow a state fish and wildlife agency to have a net increase in public land. Don't ask me what, well, it, it comes down to money and taxes. And so I've come across that where, yeah, people don't like that, but in general, that's, kind of the minority, kind of like in the wilderness scenario that you spoke of, that there's a lot more people that would like to see, oh, yeah, I'd like to 
see more land set aside because you know in the kind of the uh, oh like the midwest the high plains like the dakotas uh, nebraska those states they don't have a lot of public land not like in colorado where we've got nearly 40 percent uh some of the other western states got a significant amount of public land so it really works out well for them but for for uh like I said, these other states, you know, just, the percentage of public land is like single digit, like three, four, five, six percent. So for people that want to see the land put in conservation, it's really a great idea because it's there's not a lot out there. And then there's people that want to have access to that to fish or hunt or or take a hike. Um, if you don't have the public land, well, you don't have a whole lot of opportunities. So. I, you know, I find it to be, you know, I think a lot of people in general like to see it protected, whether it's for con for multi-use or, or, you know, for conservation purposes or preservation purposes. So it sounds like you have had mostly positive uh, experiences with that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I was in uh, Indiana, you know, and this is in the Midwest a lot too, is the rail trail projects where the abandoned railroad lines were turned into trails. I know I'm sure there's some up in mm -hmm. Minnesota, but you know, that was always a, you know, when I started 30 years ago, that was really coming on strong, but there were a lot of people that didn't like it because of, uh, they had a lot of misconceptions about what it would mean to have a rail trail through their community. Like it would bring in crime and property values would be down. Riffraff biker gangs coming by. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to come Bicycle by and, gangs. You know, steal your TVs. <laughs> yeah. Where in fact, it was just the opposite. It, you know, it increased property values. It was a huge economic boom for communities because People like to come to, you know, bicycle through town or so those were uh, experiences where there was, there were a lot of anti rail trail projects that, that I, that I witnessed when I was doing that type of work back at Indiana DNR. Well, um, we're nearing the end here of our time. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I'd like to end with a few tips for the listeners because the listeners of our show are mostly outdoor enthusiasts and you've been able to make a career out of it and get paid to be outside a lot and work with the outdoors. And I think for many people, that's a dream job, but they may not know how to go about it. So do you have any tips for getting into the outdoor field or where to start well, you know, obviously, um, like an agency like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or the Park Service or the Forest Service, any of those agencies or a state fish and wildlife agency, you know, a degree in natural resources, whether it's biology or general science studies, is, is a, a huge benefit to have. And I think... For younger people that are in college, you know, get those seasonal jobs with an agency. Well, again, whether it's a local at the county level or the state level or the federal level, 
they're always looking for seasonal employees to assist in whatever natural resource management work they might be involved in. And let me think of some other things. I think that's two of the biggest things is the degree and that seasonal experience. Because let's face it, yeah, everybody wants to do do that job, would like to be in, would love to work for the Park Service or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And I think one of the things that really worked for me that I really liked is that it is, it's a public service that you're offering. It's, it's all about providing a service to the public, you know, managing the land so that people can use it and public servant to the, to the resources. You know, it's, it's not about making money. You're not going to get rich at it, but it's, but it's very rewarding gratifying job. I mean, I, I would never, I no regrets about, about it. So I don't know if that answered your question totally, but that's, um, I, and then I guess I would reach out to, you know, there's people out there that are interested. They could reach out to me. I mean, there's, there's always professionals out there that would, uh, be more than happy to share their, guidance or their experience uh, on a one-on-one level. I mean, I've over the time that I've worked, I've, I've had younger people contact me, ask for advice. So, and it's, that's, it's another valuable, just another valuable uh, opportunity. And I would say, you know, well, one thing, and just get to know if for the, the college folks that are going through college, get to know their professors really well and have the professors know them well because they can provide a really good uh, source of uh, information uh, and resources on jobs that are out there. Is there a good way to reach you if someone would be interested? You don't have to share your personal info, but is there a good way? Um, on um, Facebook, you know, they could direct message me. That's O-T-T-O space J-O-S-E. Correct. Okay. Well, Otto, thank you for being on the show. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> it's been a great time. I mean, I just, I, I, I just, and I said this in Colorado, but, you know, at the alumni camper meeting that, you know, get, Camp Voyager was a one of my hallmark experiences as a young man growing up, and so I commend you for being there as a counselor and now the uh, director that you're carrying on Charlie's tradition because it's a fantastic, honorable tradition to carry on. So I really, my hats off to you. It's a great, it's a great legacy to be part of. I can tell you that. Be sure to visit the camp website, campvoyager.com, to learn more about summer programming, to read blog posts, and to order some gear. Follow camp on Instagram at camp underscore voyager. We'll see you next time on the trail.